In February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be a speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far, far more material that I could deal with than just four lectures. Therefore, I have expanded those initial four lectures into a total of about 15 messages or so, of which you're listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to the messages to visit my publishing website at triumphantpublications.com, and you can read for free a written version based on all of these messages. These messages are also being compiled into a, a published book titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise, scheduled for release sometime in the middle of June of 2013 of this year. My website will guide you on how to purchase a hard copy when available. However, if you don't want to purchase a hard version, you can read the transcript for free of the book by simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Simple Compromise Transcript. Also on my publishing website, I've listed links to all the audio messages that I'm giving on this subject found on Sermon Audio under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Simple Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen uh, or read about this very dangerous view that's gaining ground, unfortunately, among, among certain churches and institutions. This is part two of my analysis of, of another compromiser, theistic evolutionist, by the name of Dr. Greg Davidson. Dr. Dave, uh, Davidson was invited to be uh, to conduct a seminar at the 2012 PCA General Assembly, which he did. He laid out during that seminar his views why an old earth view should be considered. He did not talk about evolution during that seminar. However, he referred people to his book if they wanted to know what he thought. In my analysis consisting of part one and part two of Davidson, I am spending considerable time going through his book called When Faith and Science Collide. And in this analysis, I am demonstrating that, that Dr. Davidson is a most ardent and committed uh, supporter of evolution. He believes that man did evolve from ape-like creatures. And he has... Uh, put forth some of the most bizarre interpretations of Scripture that I have ever read. And the reason he gives these bizarre uh, interpretations is because he believes that scientific findings can be legitimately used to reinterpret what the Bible says, particularly in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. In part one, I left off, uh, with commenting how Dr. Davidson has said that the scientific evidence for evolution in an old earth is unassailable. Well, let me pick up at this point and then give some quotes from his book uh, whereby he uses uh, uh, these quotes to demonstrate how evolution is supposedly unassailable. There is virtually no aspect of standard evolutionary thinking that Dr. Davidson rejects. 
He is most assuredly a committed evolutionist. He writes in his book, quote, The belief that life originated from non-living materials is not derived exclusively from a commitment to materialism. Recall that scripture tells us that the earth brought forth life at God's command. Rather, the belief arises from the observation that the earth contains a distinct record of life forms through time that starts with very simple-celled organisms that did not have a cell nucleus. Given this record, it is a log- it's logical that there may have been some natural God-instituted processes at work that could have produced these first cells. This example promulgates the false assertion that creation and evolution are inherently opposite worldviews between which, which one must choose. If God created through a series of generations, evolution is simply the name scientists have given to the study of God's workmanship. Transitional forms are now recognized for a large number of evolutionary pathways, representing both large-scale changes, amphibian to reptile, land mammal to marine mammal, and small-scale changes, leaf-eating mammal to grass-eating mammal. The general evolutionary pathway leading from reptiles to mammals, however, comes through clearly. Life obviously changed in a stepwise fashion over time, but the complexity of the developmental pathway and the incomplete nature of the fossil record means it will not always be possible to firmly establish exact lineages between ancient and modern organisms, end of quote from Davidson's book. Davidson has no problem in believing that birds evolved from reptiles. In fact, he's very critical of creationist Dr. Dwayne Gish's writings, where Gish states that if reptile-to-bird evolution was true, then the intermediate life forms would be virtually unable to survive. Regarding the evolution of birds from reptiles, Davidson writes, If small steps are required to go from a flightless dinosaur with none of these distinctive bird features to a fully functional bird, intermediate forms must have existed with flightless bird-like features that were advantageous in their own right without, without apparent forethought to later generations that might make use of those adaptations for flight, end of quote. I have often sat and studied birds. They indeed are amazing creatures, and the fact that these creatures can actually fly is mind-boggling. I've often thought, there are people who are foolish enough to actually think that these amazing creatures just randomly evolved over millions of years. In his book, Davidson gives what he considers 11 steps that could demonstrate the gradual evolution of reptiles into birds. It is no problem for Davidson to conjecture how feathers evolved on flightless dinosaurs. A minor mutation here, a minor mutation there, and eventually you have a flying feathered creature. It's amazing what men will go to to put forth their foolish speculations. As creationists like to point out, Where are these transitional creatures today? Where is the conclusive fossil record of all these intermediate species that had to occur if evolution is true? 
Davidson simply states, quote, Few of these are likely to be found preserved in fossil form, even though they may represent the majority of mutations. The recipients of beneficial copying errors are the ones that survive to adulthood and reproduce in sufficient numbers that are likely to be fossilized and later discovered. Thus, we have a bias in the fossil record for the products of beneficial mutation. End of quote. Well, how convenient, Dr. Davidson. Your argument is exactly like Charles Darwin. He says, well, yeah, there's a problem with the fossil record. But we just have insufficient evidence. That's very convenient, don't you think? And it is absurd, however, to think that certain species are greatly uh, manifested in the fossil record, while others are not. Davidson gives the typical rationale as an evolutionist. How convenient it is for the overwhelming majority of these intermediate creatures to not be in existence with no fossil record of them. Davidson actually thinks there are many examples. It's just that the public doesn't know about them, he says. What are we to think of Dr. Davidson's commitment to organic evolution? It is one tragic example of compromise with the world in the name of science. All that Davidson has done is whitewash the rotten worldview of Darwinism. Is, Dar is Davidson not aware of the origins of Darwinian thought? Does he not know that a driving force behind Darwin's thinking was his rebellion to biblical creationism? As I pointed out in a previous lecture, Darwin hated the doctrine of hell. Charles Lyell, who popularized the notion of geological uniformitarianism that Darwin wholeheartedly adopted, was born out of Lyell's commitment to rid mankind of any kind of faith in the Mosaic account of creation. That's what Lyell wrote. Davidson fails to realize that men reason on the basis of their governing worldviews or presuppositions. Yes, Davidson does not adopt what he calls the materialism of Darwinian proponents, but he still wholeheartedly ad adopts their scientific conclusions. Davidson's contention that the fossil record clearly demonstrates the gradual evolution of life from single-celled organisms to modern man is simply false. He thinks that gradual modifications representing small and large-scale changes are clearly seen in the evolution of amphibians to reptiles and land mammals to man. Davidson's contention that there are thousands of fossil remains demonstrating man's common ancestry with hominids is also clearly false. Notice the dogmatism that Davidson asserts, which is a common ploy of evolutionists. He says it is, quote, obvious that life evolved over time. Obvious? Really? Darwinism is clearly seen? It's a, a fact? Really? Then explain why is it that Darwin, Huxley, and other committed evolutionists admitted that the fossil record was not clear. Explain to me also some of the embarrassing frauds in the supposed existence of man's missing links. Before these frauds became evident, these evolutionists spoke with great certainty about these missing links, only to be embarrassed. But then it didn't really matter.
because Darwinism is a worldview, and it the alternative these evolutionists say is unacceptable. The God of the Bible is unacceptable to them. Now Davidson accepts supposedly the God of the Bible, but then he wants to accept simultaneously all of the findings of these godless men thinking they have reasoned correctly. It's important that I reiterate what Darwin and others admitted. I will give some of the quotes again that I mentioned in lecture number five. Darwin once stated in a letter to Thomas Huxley, he said, quote, I entirely agree with you that the difficulties on my notions are terrific. Yet having seen what all the reviews have said against me, I have far more confidence in the general truth of the doctrine than I formerly did. When we descend to details, we can prove that not one species has changed. We cannot prove that a single species has changed. Nor can we prove that the supposed changes are beneficial, which is the groundwork of the theory. Nor can we explain why some species have changed and others have not. End of quote. In his presidential address at the British Association for 1870, Thomas Huxley made this astonishing concession, quote, He discussed the rival theories of spontaneous generation in the universal derivation of life from preceding life and professed disbelief as an act of philosophic faith that in some remote period life had arisen out of inanimate matter though there was no evidence that anything of the sort has occurred recently, end of quote. In a letter to Charles Lyell, dated June 25, 1859, Huxley stated, I by no means supposed that the transmutation hypothesis is proven or anything like it, end of quote. It doesn't sound like it was very obvious to Darwin and Huxley now, is it? And what did Darwin believe about the fossil record? Here's what Darwin said, quote, Why if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine uh, gradation, do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? Why is not all of nature in confusion instead of the species being as we see them, well defined? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic change. And this, perhaps, is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. End the quote from Charles Darwin. Has the fossil record improved as Darwin had hoped? 140 years after the publication of Origin of Species, the evidence is still demonstrating the falsity of Darwin's theory. Professor Steve Jones of the University College London published an updated version of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1999. The fossil record still posed the same problem. Professor Jones states, quote, The fossil record in defiance of Darwin's whole idea of gradual change often makes great leaps from one form to the next, far from the display of intermediates to be expected from slow advance through natural selection, many species appear without warning, 
persist in fixed form and disappear, leaving no descendants. Geology assuredly does not reveal any finely graduated organic chain, and this is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. End of quote from Professor Jones. The prominent evolutionist of the 20th century, Stephen Gould, described the fossil record as, the, quote, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record as the trade secret of paleontology. End of quote. D.M. Ropp, in his article titled Conflicts Between Darwin and Paleontology, states, quote, Darwin's theory of natural selection has always been closely linked to evidence from fossils. And probably most people assume that fossils provide a very important part of the general argument that is made in favor of Darwinian interpretations of the history of life. Unfortunately, this is not strictly true. The evidence we find in the geological record is not nearly as compatible with Darwinian natural selection as we would like it to be. Darwin was completely aware of this. He was embarrassed by the fossil record because it didn't look the way he predicted it would. And as a result, he devoted a long section of the origin of species to an attempt to explain and rationalize the differences. Darwin's general solution to the incompatibility of fossil evidence is his theory was to say that the fossil record is a very incomplete one. Well, as we are now about 120 years after Darwin and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded, we now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. End of quote. We then get this forthright admission from Niles Elridge, an evolutionist. He says, quote, We paleontologists have said that the history of life supports the gradual adaptive change, all the while really knowing that it does not. End of quote. In his book, Davidson even addresses some creationist views as cultic. I'm sure he would view my criticism of his as cultic. This is a rather bold and harsh statement to make. I personally take offense to being called a cultist because I believe the Bible actually says what it means to say. Davidson writes in his book, quote, Young Earth proponents start with the presupposed truth that the days in Genesis 1 were intended as a literal rendering of the creation events. As such, evolution must be false, and the earth must be young. All examination of evidence must demonstrate this position. Two types of people emerge from this starting point. One type honestly argues scriptural or scientific evidence though in my opinion makes mistakes based on faulty understanding of both scripture and science. There is a second type that is more disturbing. To this group, the truth of special creation is of such importance that the truthfulness of arguments used in its support can be justifiably twisted if it leads towards belief in the ultimate truth of creation. The loose affiliation shared by these people make up the membership of a creationist cult where the God of creation has been replaced by worship of creation events 
rather than the Creator. All is done in the name of Christ, but employing methods grossly inconsistent with Christian character. End of quote from Davidson. Yes, Dr. Davidson, I and others do presuppose the veracity of Scripture. Yes, I do put the primacy of Scripture above all other things such as science. A commitment to the authority of Scripture demands this. Yes, I do adopt the principle laid out in the Westminster Confession of Faith that Scripture interprets Scripture. Yes, I do accept the literal meaning of Genesis as the plain reading of the text because it exhibits elements of historical narrative. Dr. Davidson is taking on the historical understanding of Genesis 1 where many very competent and godly theologians and scientists have accepted Genesis 1 as a literal scientific account of creation, I and others are not the cultists. And to be called a cultist is inexcusable. Yes, I've been very critical of Dr. Davidson in my analysis, but I'm just using his own quotes. And I'm using his quotes compared to the quotes of other evolutionists and showing that Davidson's conclusions are erroneous and that Davidson is not manifesting a view of Scripture that he ought to manifest. What are Davidson's views of Adam as a hominid chosen by God? Davidson's flawed hermeneutic is most conspicuous in his interpretation of man's creation. Frankly, it is incredible how he interprets Scripture to fit into his evolutionary scheme. His so-called exegesis of Genesis 2-7 should only be viewed as a prime example of eisegesis, reading into a text one's personal views. In this case, it is reading into Scripture the tenets of Darwinian evolution. Davidson has a significant section in his book on man's origin. He quotes Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. End of quote from God's precious word. Davidson then immediately proceeds to inform us what science says about man's origin. He states, quote, It may come as a surprise even to those who accept human evolution that there are now fossils remains from over 5,000 different individual creatures that exhibit features intermediate between modern humans and ancient apes. Well, over a dozen hominid species have now been identified that represent a broad spectrum of transitional forms. End of quote. Davidson thinks that many people's disdain with the thought that they came from a common ape-like ancestry is simply a manifestation of an inflated sense of self-worth. He writes, quote, Our first reaction may be that man is not like the animals. Man is unique. and must have been created, even if nothing else was. The concept that man might share a common origin with other life forms is an affront to our dignity and sense of value. One must ask, however, if the indignation comes from an understanding of biblical truth, or simply from an inflated sense of self-worth, end of quote. I say that Dr. Davidson has failed to do his Bible homework. Psalm 8 says, 
that man was created a little lower than God with dominion over the creatures. Man was created in God's image unlike the animal world that was not created in his image. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 39 explicitly states, as I've mentioned in other lectures, that there is one flesh of animals and another of men. The Bible emphatically and categorically rejects any common ancestry of man with animals. I do find it insulting to think I'm nothing more than a highly evolved animal. But above all, I find Davidson's view insulting to the living God who made man in his image, who created all things instantaneously in the span of six days. I do find it insulting to the Lord Jesus Christ that from an evolutionary viewpoint, in his human nature, he supposedly has a common ancestry with lower forms of life. It is shameful to think this. Evolutionary thinking is shameful in its whole approach to science. Why can't men simply accept the fact that it's far more dignifying and honoring to God to believe the plain meaning of Scripture the way God inspired it to his writers? Why do they think they, this exalted view of, so, of pseudoscience, which is what evolutionary thinking is, a pseudo-false science, why should science be the guiding principle in determining biblical exegesis? Why should I believe the ramblings of a Darwin who hated God? My quotes from earlier lectures demonstrate that these evolutionists, in their most honest moments, admitted the great difficulties with evolutionary ideas. The telling sign when they admitted this, but then immediately said the alternative God is totally unacceptable. Davidson discusses two evolutionary views regarding man's common ancestry with ape-like creatures. He writes, quote, Over the course of hominid existence, several species existed at the same time. Most of these species eventually died out, with only one line eventually giving rise to man. Determining the exact lineage is difficult. For more, for more of one species at any given time, possessed intermediate features between more ancient hominids and man. What is clear, however, is that younger species take on increasingly more human-like features with fully anatomical human skeletons appearing only within the last 200,000 years in Africa. Out-of-Africa advocates argue that modern man evolved from a single isolated population of hominids in Africa near the time of the oldest known Homo sapiens fossils and migrated through the earth uh, where geographical isolation eventually gave rise to the various modern people groups. Multi-regional advocates argue that an earlier hominid species, Homo erectus, was already dispersed geographically and modern humans evolved independently to yield our current genetic diversity. End of quote from Davidson's book. Let's be clear about Davidson's so-called exegesis of Genesis 2-7, as he brings the great illumination of modern science to bear upon the scripture, so we know exactly what God meant. The meaning of, quote, being formed of dust, according to Davidson, is clearly man's evolution from hominid creatures over millions of years. So, 
this is the plain reading of the text, then? So, this is the intended meaning of the writer of Genesis? Evolution over millions of years? Seriously? It is at this point that Davidson's evolutionary views, in an attempt to explain man's origins, show forth his ineptitude in interpreting Scripture. Davidson, in support of modern science, actually believes that it is a likely scenario that humans actually began from a single woman. However, he does say there is a possibility that humanity may trace its existence to a single male and female pair. Davidson writes in his book, quote, Changes in the mtDNA from one generation to the next are only caused by mutations. The rate at which these mutations occur is, a, is approximately known, allowing estimates of time to be calculated for how long it has been since uh, disparate individuals share a common ancestor. Comparison of mtDNA among humans around the world suggests that modern man derived from a single woman often referred to as mitochondrial Eve within the last 200,000 years. From a genetic standpoint, a common mother does not automatically mean all our DNA derived from a single human pair, Adam and Eve. It is possible to get a mitochondrial Eve from a small population of individuals if only one female in the population produces a continuous line of offspring that always includes at least one reproducing female in each generation. Others in the population that eventually produce only males will not pass on mtDNA, but could nonetheless pass on other DNA by mating with females from mitochondrial Eve's lineage. This is the scenario proposed by the most evolutionary geneticists, but the possibility that humanity may also trace its lineage exclusively through a single male-female pair cannot be ruled out. End of quote from Davidson. Let's examine what Davidson is saying is the most likely scenario for human evolution. First, it all started with a female called mitochondrial Eve. Second, geneticists believe that man's origin is not from a pair, but from a common mother. Third, Davidson thinks that man's origin from a single male-female pair cannot be ruled out. However, most geneticists don't think so. It's not likely, but it's a possibility that man's origin came from a man and a woman. Now, just how in the world do we fit this scenario in with the God-glorifying exegesis of biblical text? Let's consider what Genesis 2, 21-24 says, quote, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. End of quote.
from God's precious word. The Bible clearly states that Adam was created first. It says that God closed up the flesh at the place where he took the rib from Adam, which is a definite sign that this is a very literal meaning. God used a real rib from Adam to make Eve. Adam's exclamation upon seeing Eve reflects that Eve literally came from his bone. Adam names Eve on the basis that she is literally from his bone and flesh. How more plain can he get? And yet Davidson says no. Does not the New Testament confirm the Genesis account of creation? In 1 Timothy 2.13 where it says, For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve? Was inspired Paul mistaken? Paul says Adam was created first. Which is why women in the church must not exercise authority over men. Moreover, just where in the evolutionary scheme is the marriage institution? Genesis 2.24 explicitly states that the marriage institution was ordained on the sixth day of creation when God created Eve and brought her to Adam. This is what Jesus, the Son of God, understood. The inst- institution of marriage was sanctioned on day six of the creation. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, which says, quote, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. End of quote. From the word of God. From what Jesus said. Jesus is quoting from Genesis 2.24. When he says that a man shall leave his father and mother, and cleave to his wife. But let's ask evolutionists, such as Greg Davidson, a vital question. In an evolutionary scheme, when did marriage take place? Jesus said it began at the beginning of creation, with man and woman's creation. In an evolutionary scheme, there was obviously sexual reproduction going on among these hominids for hundreds of thousands of years, according to them. Were these hominids married? The sexual activity among these hominid creatures really cannot be considered marriage from a biblical perspective. Marriage is a human institution. If these views were incredible enough, Davidson has some further illuminations of how we should interpret Scripture. And these are quite fanciful. He has his own twist on the meaning of predestination or election. Davidson writes, quote, If God created man in the same fashion as the animals, there must have been a point at which he created a hominid that was to be the first true human, Adam. To this individual, God endowed an eternal soul and the capacity to commune with the Creator. The ultimate distinction between man and animal. Indeed, if there is such a thing as a soul, there must have been a first true man. The idea of God choosing one individual out of many is also consistent with what Scripture tells us of God's character. It is thus at least within God's character to choose one hominid from among many to endow with the soul and initiate the human race. It is conceivable that the Eve and Adam of Scripture are genuinely mitochondrial Eve and her mate selected by God from a population of hominids 
and endowed with the soul. Genetic contributions from human-looking hominids into the truly human lineage of Adam and Eve may be the result of the forbidden unions described in Genesis 6 between the, quote, sons of God and, quote, the daughters of men. End of quote from Davidson's book. We should note from these comments of Davidson that he considers the notion of predestination or election is first seen in God's choosing out of a population of hominids, one of these to receive a soul, if not two. This special hominid is Adam. To buttress this notion of election, Davidson mentioned several notable biblical characters were, who were recipients of God's electing love, such as Abraham, Jacob, and Jeremiah. Apparently, this election began with these ape-like creatures. Davidson advances some strange ideas of how we should understand the existence of other hominids that Cain encountered when driven away by God after his murder of his brother Abel. Davidson writes, quote, If it is unsettling to think of God choosing one hominid from among a population to endow with a soul, it will likely be more so to consider that the children of Adam and Eve may have interacted with a species that looked and behaved in ways we would consider human, but were not human. The only response that can be offered is that God often operates in ways that mystify us. When we think we have God figured out, we will inevitably find we have been presumptuous. At the time of Cain's banishment, he was the second child of the first humans in existence. Who else was there to fear? The most common explanation is that Adam and Eve had other children that populated the area into which Cain was to wander. Indeed, Genesis 5-4 does say that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, but there's a serious timing problem. The first three sons of Adam and Eve are explicitly named. Cain and Abel were the first two, followed by Seth after the murder of Abel. End of quote from Davidson's book. Davidson is incorrect when he says that the timing of the birth of Seth constitutes a serious problem. Why is this a problem? The scripture does not mention how many sons or daughters Adam and Eve had. Seth's birth is mentioned after Cain's murder of Abel and God's banishment of him. We are told that after Cain's banishment, Cain's wife conceived Enoch, not to be confused with the Enoch born to Jared in the godly line. We are not told how many sons and daughters were born to Adam and Eve prior to Seth. The Bible says that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. Genesis 5-4, in speaking of Adam's lifespan, indicates that he did have other sons and daughters. The reason that Seth is the third son named is for the purpose of tracing the Messianic line. Being the third son named doesn't mean he was the third son biologically. For a more thorough discussion of the trustworthiness of the biblical chronology, please see my lecture number two titled, The Meaning of Creation Days in Biblical Chronology. Who did Cain fear when he was banished according to Davidson? If one thought Davidson's exegesis of man's creation was imaginative and far-fetched, 
They consider his views of what constituted the sexual union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Davidson writes in his book, quote, It might also be suggested that others refer to animals, other creatures, but the language used to express both Cain's fear and God's response clearly indicate a fear of other, quote, people. It is conceivable that others could refer to a race of creatures with human likeness, but lacking the human soul, perhaps Neanderthals, end of quote, from Davison's book. Before I continue this incredible interpretation of Scripture by Davidson, I need to point out a very confusing thing about the above quote. Davidson said Cain feared other people. However, he says that the others could be a race of creatures known as Neanderthals who have human likeness but who lack a human soul. How can one be a person without a soul? Let's continue with Davidson's understanding of Genesis 6. He writes, quote, Neanderthals were not brutish ape men as they are often portrayed in the popular media. How Davidson knows this is anyone's guess. Though of diminished cognitive potential relative to humans, Neanderthals were nonetheless similar to humans in many ways. They lived in groups, fabricated tools, painted pictures on cave walls, and placed items related to daily life in the graves of their dead. If Cain were to make reference to them, it would be natural to personify them, even though they lacked the crucial element, the soul, that defines and separates man from all other creation. This brings us to the Nephilim. Genesis 6 describes God's displeasure with the wickedness of mankind. The behavior God focuses on is enigmatic description of sexual unions between the sons of God and the daughters of men, which gave rise to the Nephilim. The Nephilim were apparently individuals of some physical stature and ability, mighty men of old, men of renown. End of quote from Davidson's book. Before continuing, let's get this straight. The creatures that Cain feared were Neanderthals, who looked somewhat human, but they weren't humans, because they lacked the defining quality of being a human, possessing a soul. If Neanderthals weren't human, why does Davidson refer to them as other people? What's amazing is that Greg Davidson is aware of a common interpretation of what is meant by the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Davidson says in his book, quote, Still another and perhaps the most widely accepted interpretation is that the sons of God refer to the righteous light of Seth, who intermarried with the unrighteous line of Cain. Each of these interpretations re represents a reasonable attempt to understand the passage, but none would stand close scrutiny, end of quote. By the way, the interpretation Davidson just mentioned is the commonly held reformed understanding of the meaning of the text. It is the interpretation advanced by notable commentators such as John Calvin and Matthew Henry. But alas, these men were wrong. Their interpretation just cannot withstand close scrutiny, as Davidson says. Then what is Davidson's illumined understanding of Genesis 6-2? Davidson states in his book, quote, 
The interpretation that the sons of God are the righteous line of Seth is often accepted not in its own merit, but because no better interpretation can be found. This interpretation is also weak, for there is no indication that God forbade marriage between the offspring of Seth and Cain. Nor is there reason to believe that unions between them would give rise to anything other than normal human beings. Further, if the line of Seth were truly righteous, they would not have so readily taken wives from among the unrighteous, nor would they have been need, need for the flood. The wickedness of mankind fully encompassed both the lineages, with the sole exception of Noah. Now consider the possibility that Neanderthals walked for a time with humans. Though of human likeness, Neanderthals would have been considered, quote, strange flesh. Sexual union between humans and Neanderthals could have been physically possible, but intolerable in God's sight in much the same way as the acts of Sodom and Gomorrah were intolerable. In this context, Neanderthals may be the sons of God and human the daughters of men, where sons of can mean the offspring of or creation of God. Successful union between Neanderthals and humans could easily have given rise to offspring with unique physical characteristics who would be identified with a unique name, the Nephilim. Though Neanderthals were not taller than humans, their bone structure does suggest greater physical strength. Offspring of Neanderthal humans could very well have produced a mix of strength and cognitive ability capable of feats that could not lead or that could lead to the designation of some as mighty men. If Adam's creation predates the Neanderthal, then a similar argument could be made with Homo heidelbergensis, or some select similar coexisting hominid. If Adam's appearance is a much more recent event, coexisting hominids would appear even more human like other hominids. End of quote. From Davidson's book. Before I interact with Davidson's incredible interpretation of Genesis 6, he does have a footnote on the sexual union of humans with subhuman Neanderthals. He states in his footnote, quote, It would be natural here to question whether the union of a human with a soul to a Neanderthal without a soul would produce a child with a soul. There is no way of answering this question other than to speculate that perhaps the child possessed a soul by analogous reference to Paul's claim that the child of a believing and unbelieving parent is sanctified or considered clean to the believing parent. 1 Corinthians 7.14 End of quote from Davidson's book. What can be said to such wild and fanciful interpretations of Genesis 6 by Greg Davidson? He's already said that the typical interpretation of Genesis 6 that the sexual union was between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain cannot withstand close scrutiny. This interpretation is a typical Reformed understanding of the passage and one that I believe is accurate. However, Davidson thinks that a more plausible interpretation is that humans had sexual union with Neanderthals that had no soul. 
He thinks it is a mystery to determine whether the offspring, the Nephilim, would have souls or not. All I can say is that such an interpretation is exegetical butchery of God's word. Humans and subhumans having sexual union? I must say that this is one of the most bizarre interpretations of any biblical passage that I have ever read. It only demonstrates Greg Davidson's incompetence in handling the Word of God. And this man was invited to speak at the PCA 2012 General Assembly. Davidson's fanciful and absurd interpretation is due to his commitment to evolutionary thought, which has caused him to interpret Scripture in keeping with the ungodly philosophy of life that is no real science at all, but should be viewed as pseudoscience. The idea of human, the idea of human beings biologically capable of having sexual union with non-humans that actually produce offspring is biologically untenable. Davidson's fanciful and absurd interpretation is due to his commitment to evolutionary thought, which has caused him to interpret scripture in keeping with this ungodly philosophy of life that is no real science at all, but a pseudoscience, a false science. The idea of human being, of humans, being biologically capable of having sexual union with non-humans that actually produce offspring is biologically untenable. Yes, bestiality, bestiality can take place, but no offspring is possible because the two are not of the same kind. However, in an evolutionary scheme that is more fitting with another Star Trek episode, such bizarre things are possible. Perhaps I should say that Davidson's view is of sexual union is more fitting with H.G. Wells' science fiction novel titled The Island of Dr. Moreau. In this book, Dr. Moreau is able to create human-like creatures that are mixtures of humans and pigs, humans and leopards, etc. Once one abandons sound exegetical principles by not allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, and by allowing extraneous ideas to interpret Scripture, then any interpretation is conceivable. Greg Davidson has contended that man's evolution from hominid ancestors is well documented in the fossil record. This contention of his only demonstrates his presuppositional commitment to an evolutionary scheme. This fossil documentation, like all other supposed documentations of evolutionists, is ridiculous. Men find what they want to find. Men discover precisely what they are paid to find, like the funding of National Geographic magazine of missing link hunters. The saga of the pursuit of man's animal ancestry is paved with notorious hoaxes, and the basis for making the grandiose claims that a missing link has been found would be outright laughable if it wasn't more disconcerting. The missing links are still missing. Of course, we do have cable shows like Monster Quest, which periodically features some encounter a person has had with Bigfoot, Sasquatch. The whole legend around Bigfoot is that these hominid creatures are still among us. But, of course, they are never found. The reason being, they do not exist. 
Just this past year, the Internet carried the sad story of a young man in Montana or Wyoming who was trying to foster yet another sighting by dressing up as Bigfoot, but who had the unfortunate event of being run over by a vehicle on the highway. What passes as bona fide science in the quest for these missing links in the fossil record is absurd. A paleontologist finds a tooth or a part of a skull and then exclaims, Eureka! I found a three million old missing link. In this illustration, I'm not exaggerating. Let us take a cursory perusal of some of the so-called discoveries of the missing link, verifying that man did evolve over millions of years. It is not uncommon in these findings for information to be deliberately left out, information like human skeletons in the same area or nearby, or, or human skeletons being at the same geological level as the supposed great find. Let's take a look at some of these supposed uh, fossil finds for the missing links. Let's consider Java Man. In 1887, while researching in Java, the Dutch physician, Dr. Eugene de Bois, found some bones that he claimed were one of man's missing links. Well, what did he find? First, he found parts of a skull cap. A year later, about 50 feet from the skull cap, he finds a femur, leg bone, and three teeth that did not belong to the skull cap and which were found several yards from it. Now, why would he assume that all these pieces all belong to the same creature, being that they were not found in the exact location. Note, he assumed. Does this sound like sound, objective, paleontological research? He called his remarkable discovery, Pithecanthropus erectus, erect ape-man. This was the official name given to the find, but the common name given was Java Man. To demonstrate the prejudice or bias, or should I say outright con job, the voice failed to disclose at the same time of his discovery two human skulls on the same level. This was a fact that he deliberately kept hidden for 30 years. For the longest time, the voice's discovery was met with great reticence among federal, uh, fellow naturalists. But eventually they fell in line years later and affirmed that this was indeed a bona fide missing link. As it were, 15 years before his death, Du Bois would, quote, pull the rug out from under his supporters by declaring that he had changed his mind and that his discovery was nothing but a giant gibbon. Let's consider the missing link, Peking Man. We move on to another supposed missing link discovery. In the 1920s and 30s, Dr. Davidson Black near Peking, China, found 30 skulls, 11 mandibles, lower jaws that is, and 147 teeth. On the basis of just one tooth, he declared that this was a hominid, calling it Synanthropus pecaninsius, commonly known as Peking Man. All but two teeth disappeared forever from 1941 to 1945. 
there were some pictures taken at the same time, and the rears of the skulls had been caved in, which led some to believe that the creature's brains were a nice delicacy for some humans. Again, on the basis of some isolated bones, without any confirmation that they were even from the same creature, and with an amazing imagination, a missing link appears. Let's consider the supposed missing link, Nebraska Man. In 1922, Henry Fairfield Osborne, considered one of the most eminent evolutionary paleontologists of his day, had been given a tooth discovered in Nebraska ten years earlier, and on the basis of this one tooth, he declared the discovery of a missing link. He said it looked more human than ape-like. He called it Hesperithophiscus Harold Cookie, commonly known as Nebraska Man. Incredibly, the Illustrated London News on Je June 24, 1922, ran a front-page article on this with an artistic illustration, believe it or not, of what this missing link looked like. That's right, a whole full-scale model of a brutish creature with some fellow brutish creatures were shown in the picture. An artist had constructed this full-size image of what Nebraska man must have looked like. Obviously, it was completely made up in the mind of the artist. And mind you, we're talking about one tooth. I don't think the lady who stars on the television show Bones could come up with a full-scale model of Nebraska man based on a single tooth. It's ludicrous. But the rest of the story is even more telling. In 1922, Senator William Jennings Bryan was campaigning nationally against children being taught that they were descended from apes. The country was headed for a showdown in this regard that came to a dramatic head in 1925 with the Stokes trial, popularly known as the Monkey Trial. Henry Fairborn Osborne was scheduled to be one of the expert witnesses for the defense. In fact, the New York Times on June 26, 1925, still listed Osborne as among the 11 scientists who would be called to testify in defense of John Stokes. When Brian arrived in Dayton, Tennessee, July 7, 1925, he made it clear to reporters that he was looking forward to the opportunity of confronting Osborne and Nebraska man head-on. For some reason, Osborne would never come to Dayton and give testimony of his great find, which for him and his reputation was a good thing. Because in 1927, the truth came out that the tooth, this single tooth that Osborne had declared a missing link, and on the basis of this single tooth, an artist had made up what this missing link looked like. The truth is, it turned out the tooth to belong to a wild pig. As someone said, a scientist made a man out of a pig, 
and the pig made a monkey out of the scientist. During the 1920s, there was a national campaign designed to not only discredit Darwinism, but to actually make it illegal to teach evolutionary theory in American public schools, believe it or not. The state of Tennessee, in 1925, passed a law known as the Butler Act that made it a misdemeanor for public school teachers to teach man's evolution. The bill was signed into law by then-Governor Austin P. Immediately, the ACLU was looking for a way to challenge this law, and they soon found a test case with John Stokes in Dayton, Tennessee, a fill-in biology teacher who was using a textbook to teach evolution. For a most illuminating account of the Stokes trial, I urge my readers to read the book by Edward J. Larson's his 1997 book titled, Summer for the Gods. Larson was able to secure new archival material that was not available to earlier historians. One of the most amazing things is that the whole trial was deliberately staged by key townspeople in order to put Dayton, Tennessee on the map. It became more dramatic than they ever could have imagined. When news of the trial reached William Jennings Bryan, he offered his services for the prosecution against John Stokes. When the news was known, the famous atheistic evolutionist trial lawyer, Clarence Darrow, volunteered his service for the defense. Darrow was chomping at the bit, as it were, to personally take on William Jennings Bryan. As it would turn out, Stokes would be found guilty and pay a small fine. But Darrow managed to coach or coach Brian on the stand, and after the trial was concluded, and this is what made history. Brian was no theologian, and he was no great defender of the faith. Darrow's questioning of Brian made fundamentalism look stupid, and this was indeed a watershed event in the United States. From that day forward, from the Stokes trial, evolution gained the upper hand in the public eye and has ever since prevailed. Well, let's consider another supposed missing link. Piltdown Man. One of the supposed missing links discovered in 1912 was Piltdown Man. Charles Dawson, medical doctor and part paleontologist, announced discovery of part of a school and mandible near Piltdown, England. From this, he held the discovery of one of man's missing links, Aeroanthropus Dawsani, commonly known as Piltdown Man. If there, were, if there was ever a basis for evolutionary scientists to have mud on their faces, this was it, because in 1950, further testing of the skull and mandible proved that the lower jaw had the teeth filed down and the bones treated with iron salts to make it look old. Piltdown Man was a complete, deliberate, fabricated fraud. Has the hoax deterred the evolutionists? It didn't even phase them. It has still been full steam ahead with the pursuit of 
fossil proof from man's descent from hominid creatures. After all, men must have their fetish idols. Men must find anything to run from God. Sad them. Men like Greg Davidson and others, who in the name of Jesus Christ insist that man's evolution from animal ancestors is an established fact of science. Since the supposed discovery of Piltdown Man was in 1912 and not proven to be a hoax until 1950, Professors Cole and Newman were scheduled to mention Piltdown Man in their expert affidavits at the Stokes trial in 1925, but never did. So let's make it clear. Osborne, with the Nebraska man, was to be an expert witness. That turned out to be, years later, false. A tooth of a pig. And then, in 1925, uh, certain men were scheduled to, to show that Piltdown man was proof of man's evolution. But later, 30 years later, to be found a hoax. You see, men at the time... Scientists of the time have several times been found to be wrong. And yet, the evolutionists claim that evolution is a scientific fact. Greg Davidson, the man who spoke at the PCA General Assembly uh, seminar, claims that the fossil record is replete with testimony of man's origin from animal precursors. He is wrong. Well, let's consider the works of Raymond Dart, Lewis, Mary, and Richard Leakey. The paleontological works of all these persons are supposed discoveries of missing links in East Africa. The Leakey family has gained notoriety over the years for their efforts. And National Geographic magazine has done as much as anything to make them known and famous. In 1924, Raymond Dart found in Africa what he said was a missing link from a skull and some teeth. He called this find Australopithecus afriensis, meaning southern ape. Lewis and Mary Leakey, sponsored by National Geographic Society, of course found in 1959 what they were looking for, Xenanthropus Boisai, East Africa man, in the Old Divide Gorge in Tanzania. This was not much different than what Dart had found. Of course, National Geographic made a huge issue about the discovery. In 1960, Mary Leakey found a jaw fragment at Olduvai. The cranial size was 500 cc, or less about one-third of a human. This is typical of apes, and the jaw was typical of an ape. So why are they missing links? Interestingly, in more recent years, British, ad- interestingly, in more recent years, British anatomist Lord Zuckerman for 15 years examined fossils of Australopithecus and concluded that they were ape, no way related to humans. 
and that they did not walk upright, but similar to an orangutan. What about Donald Johansson's Lucy? In 1973, while working in Ethiopia, Donald Johansson found a knee joint of a small primate, and noting the angle the joint formed, he declared it was the joint of a hominid, and based on fossils of animals of the area, declared on the spot that he had discovered a three million year old hominid in November 1974, Johansson found 40% of a fossilized skeleton, a female, and named it Lucy. It was three and a half feet tall with a brain capacity of 450 cc. He called a conference and announced the discovery of a one and a half million year old hominid that walked upright. Of course, National Geographic promised funds and assigned a photographer to Johansson's expedition. And of course, in 1975, he found other fossils from 13 individuals that he called first family. Since then, others examining the knee joint of Lucy have disagreed with Johansson, saying that the angle is more in tune with tree climbers. Let's consider a more modern supposed missing link. In general, how reliable are these missing link hunters, as I call them? Let's consider this one. In 1983, New Scientist magazine reported, quote, a five-million-year-old piece of bone that was thought to be a collarbone of a human-like creature is actually part of a dolphin rib, according to an anthropologist at the University of California, Berkeley, end of quote. Dr. Tim White, an anthropologist at the University of California, said that the find was on par with Nebraska man and Piltdown man finds. The discoverer anthropologist, Dr. Joel Boaz, was standing by his find. However, fellow anthropologists became skeptical of the find, and finally it was concluded to be the part of a dolphin rib. It is fitting what John Hopkins University anthropologist Alan Walker has said about the incident. He said that there is a long history of misinterpreting various bones as humanoid clavicles. And Dr. White added, quote, The problem with a lot of anthropologists is that they want so much to find a hominid that any scrap of bone becomes a hominid bone, end of quote. Someone mockingly said that the find should be called Flipper Pithecus. I think it's fitting. Unbelieving men are determined to run from God, to bow to the fetish idol of human evolution. Sadly, there is a group of churchmen and professors at evangelical institutions that want to adopt such a godless notion. Well, what about Greg Davidson's belief of death prior to man's fall into sin? Davidson is in full agreement with Dr. Ron Chun on man's common ancestor with hominids and God's choice of one of these hominids to bestow his image upon it. Because Dr. Davidson is a committed evolutionist, this position forces him, like all others, to reinterpret the Bible to fit evolution into one's view of sin and death. 
in order to preserve some resemblance to biblical theology, Davidson distinguishes between spiritual and physical death. This means that Adam's fall into sin brought spiritual death, but physical death could have existed from the beginning outside the Garden of Eden. Davidson writes in his book, quote, It makes more sense that material death existed from the start, but initially outside of man's experience. The description of Adam and Eve's stay and eviction from the Garden of Eden suggests that life outside the Garden had always been more harsh than life inside. Thorns, thistles, and material death may have always existed beyond the Garden's borders. End of quote from Davidson's book. Because Davidson is a committed evolutionist, he is forced to an interpretation of Romans 8 that is wholly in error. He's guilty of eisegesis, not exegesis. Davidson writes, quote, Romans 8 does not say that the creation was subjected to futility by sin, but by God. Perhaps from the very start of creation. The implication is not that God created the world flawed, but that it was created from the very start with a yearning to see the Messiah. The idea that heaven is a return to creation, as was prior to sin, is a human concept, not an undisputed scriptural concept. If Isaiah says the wolf and lion will eat grass and straw in heaven, it does not necessarily follow that they did so at the start of creation. It is presumptuous to dismiss material death before sin with the claim that God would not call such a world good. God's ways are not our ways. End of quote from Davidson. Well, let's consider Greg Davidson's interpretation of Romans 8 with some well-known Reformed commentators like John Calvin, Matthew Henry, and William Hendrickson. Calvin comments on Romans 8, verses 20 and 22. Calvin states, quote, as it was the spiritual life of Adam to remain united and bound to his maker, so estrangement from him was the death of his soul. Nor is it any wonder that he consigned his race to ruin by his rebellion when he perverted the whole order of nature in heaven on earth. All creatures, says Paul, are groaning, Romans 8.22, subject to corruption, not of their own will, Romans 8.20. If the course is sought, or if the cause is sought, there is no doubt that they are bearing part of the punishment deserved by man, for whose use they were created. Since, therefore, the curse which goes about through all the regions of the world flowed hither and you from Adam's guilt, it is not unreasonable if it spread to all his offspring. End of quote from Calvin. Calvin understood that all of creation groans because it was made subject to corruption by man's fall into sin. Matthew Henry and William Hendrickson said it probably as best as any. Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary on Romans, quote, The sense of the apostle in these four verses we may take in the following observations. One, that there is present vanity to which the creature, by reason of the sin of man, is made subject. Verse 20. When man sinned, the ground was cursed for man's sake. And with it all the creatures, especially of this lower world, where our acquaintance lies, became subject to that curse, became mutable, immortal, under the bondage of corruption. Verse 21. There is an impurity, deformity, and an infirmity which the creature has contracted by the fall of man, 
The creature is sullied and stained. Much of the beauty of the world is gone. There is an enmity of one creature to another. They are all subject to continual alteration and decay of the individuals, liable to the strokes of God's judgments upon man. When the world was drowned in almost all the creatures in it, surely then it was subject to vanity indeed. The whole species of creatures is designed for and is hastening to a total dissolution by fire, and it is not the least part of their vanity and bondage that they are used or abused rather by men as instruments of sin. The creatures are often abused to the dishonor of the Creator. The hurt of his children were the service of his enemies. When the creatures are made for food and fuel of our lusts, they are subject to vanity. They are captivated by the law of sin, and this not willingly, not of their own choice. All the creatures desire their own perfection and consummation. When they are made instruments of sin, it is not willingly. Or they are thus captivated, not for any sin of their own, which they had committed, but for man's sin, by reason of him who hath subjected the same. Adam did it meritoriously, the creatures being delivered to him. When he by sin delivered himself, he delivered them likewise into the bondage of corruption. God did it judicially. He passed a sentence upon the creatures for the sin of man, by which they became subject. And this yoke, poor creatures, they bear in hope that it will not be so always. Two, that the creatures groan and travail in pain together under this vanity and corruption. Verse 22. It is a figurative expression. Sin is a burden to the whole creation. The sin of the Jew in crucifying Christ set the earth a-quaking under them. The idols were a burden to the weary beast in Isaiah. There is a general outcry of the whole creation against the sin of man. The stone cries out out of the wall, Habakkuk 2. The land cries, Job 31. Third, that the creature that is now thus burdened shall, at the time of the restitution of all things, be delivered from this bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 21. They shall no more be subject to vanity and corruption and the other fruits of the curse, but, on the contrary, this lower world shall be renewed. When there will be new heavens, there will be a new earth. Second Peter 3.13, Revelation 21.1. There shall be a glory conferred upon all the creatures, which shall be in the proportion of their natures as suitable and as great an advancement of the glory of the children of God shall be to them. The fire at the last day shall be a refining, not a destroying, annihilating fire. What becomes of the soul of brutes that go downwards? None can tell, but it should seem by the scripture that there will be some kind of restoration of them. The Reformed commentator William Hendrickson made these comments on Romans 8, 19 and 22. Hendrickson says, quote, The whole creation is looking forward eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God, because that event will also mean glory for the whole creation. We must bear in mind that it was not by its own choice, hence was, was not by its own fault that the creation was made subject to futility. It was not the irrational creation that sinned, it was man. And the one who subjected the creation to futility was God. It was he who, because of man's sin, pronounced a curse on. What or on whom? Well, in a sense on creation, but in an even deeper sense upon man. 
So, since creation's humiliation was not its fault, as the passage specifically states, it will certainly participate in man's restoration. Nature's destiny is intimately linked up with the sons of God. That is why the whole creation is represented as craning its neck to behold the revelation of the sons of God. Note the expression, the creation was subjected to futility. The American version reads to vanity. It indicates that since man's fall, nature's potentialities are cribbed, cabined, and confined. The creation is subject to arrested development and constant decay. Though it aspires, it's not able fully to achieve. Though it blossoms, it does not reach the point of adequately bearing fruit. What a glorious day that will be when all the restraints due to man's sin will have been removed, and we shall see this wonderful creation reaching self-realization, finally coming into its own, sharing in the glorious liberty of the children of God, end of quote from Hendrickson. Greg Davidson's interpretation of Romans 8 is totally unacceptable and is a twisting of the text. Yes, God is the one who subjected the creation to futility. God cursed the creation because of Adam's sin. Davidson miserably fails to bring in the impact of the fall as recorded in Genesis 3. Because Greg Davidson is a committed evolutionist, his interpretation of God calling his creative work good prior to the fall is equally spurious. Davidson states, quote, It is presumptuous to dismiss material death before sin with the claim that God would not call such a world, quote, good. God's ways are not our ways, end of quote from Davidson. Davidson is forced to define goodness as a part of an order where the survival of the fittest is the modus operandi, according to Darwin. Violence and death marked the natural realm for millions of years, according to evolution. And this, this is somehow an adequate exegesis of Genesis 1.31. Man's creation was the capstone of God's creation. What God declared concerning his creation, it was very good. A violent world struggling for existence can hardly be viewed as very good. Compare Matthew Henry's exegesis of Genesis 1.31 to Greg Davidson's exegesis. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Genesis 1.31, writes, quote, The complacency God took in his work, when we come to review our works, we find to our shame that much has been very bad. But when God reviewed his, all was very good. He did not pronounce it good till he had seen it so. To teach us not to answer a matter before we hear it. The work of creation was a very good work. All that God made was well made, and there was no flaw nor defect in it. It was good. God, for it is all agreeable to the mind of the Creator, just as He would have it to be. When the transcript came to be compared with the great original, it was found to be exact. No errata in it. No one place stroke. Good. For it answers the end of its creation. It is fit for the purpose which it was designed. Good. For it was serviceable, serviceable to man, whom God had appointed Lord of the visible creation. Good. For it was all God's glory 
that there is in the whole visible creation, which is demonstration of God's being in perfections, which tends to beget in the soul of man a religious regard to him and veneration of him. It was very good of each day's work except the second. It was said that it was good, but now it's very good. Now man was made. He was the chief of the ways of God. He was designed to be the visible image of the Creator's glory, the mouth of his creation of his praises. Now all was made. Every part was good, but altogether very good. The glory and goodness, the beauty and harmony of God's works, both of providence and grace, as this of creation will best appear when they are perfected. When the top stone is brought forth, we shall cry, Grace, grace unto it. Zechariah 4.7, Therefore judge nothing before the time. End of quote from Matthew Henry. Davidson further demonstrates his inability to exegete biblical texts when he says, quote, The idea that heaven is a return to creation is was prior to sin, a human concept, not in an undisputed scriptural concept. If Isaiah says the wolf and lion will eat grass and straw in heaven, it does not necessarily follow that they did so at the start of creation, end of quote. Davidson is referring to the passage found in Isaiah 65:25. First, Isaiah 65:17-25 has nothing to do with heaven. Davidson does not understand how Isaiah is using the terminology "new heavens and a new earth." An examination of the passage clearly shows the impact of the Messiah's reign on earth. It is one that will bring great peace, just as found in Isaiah 2. Houses and vineyards are being built. Verse 21. People are living lives. Long lives again, but they still die. Verse 20. Work is still being performed, but not in vain. Verses 22 and 23. Children are still being born. Verse 23. It should be obvious that this is not heaven, because Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. Matthew 22:30, which means there can be no children being born in heaven. The imagery of the wolf and the lion coexisting peacefully with the lamb is but a metaphor describing the state of peace. That Messiah's reign brings to earth. Isaiah says that the creatures will bring no harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Verse 25. The phrase, my holy mountain, is a reference to the Lord's faithful people. His church, just as Isaiah 2, 1 through 4 describes. Most creationists would assert that there was peace among God's creation before the fall. We're not told how long this peaceful life continued before the fall. But we must remember that we're not talking about millions of years for the days of creation, but typical solar days of 24 hours. In some of the books written by, the, by several of the Westminster divines who attended the Westminster Assembly, they believed the fall of man was very quick after man's creation. In a previous chapter, I mentioned two of the Westminster divines, William Tweese and Samuel Rutherford, both believed man's fall into sin was very soon after his creation. Now what about Davidson's view of Noah's flood? Just like all evolutionists, Dr. Davidson espouses a uniformitarian view of geology. In fact, the area of geology is his supposed expertise in that he's presently professor of geology at the University of Mississippi. Just like Tim Keller, Ron Chung, Jack Collins, and Peter Enns, Davidson denies the universality of Noah's flood thinking it was but a regional flood at best. Davidson writes, quote, 
In the flood story of Genesis, the literal occurrence of an immense flood and the rescue of Noah and his family are not in question. The question is whether the description of the flood covering the whole earth must literally mean the entire planet or if it can mean the entire area of human habitation and experience, the known earth. Though much evidence exists for floods of immense proportions in different places around the globe at different times during the history of the earth, no convincing evidence has been found that the entire world was immersed at one particular time in the globe. Obviously, Dr. Davidson doesn't want to think of Dr. Henry Morris's book, The Genesis Flood, presents much plausible evidence for a global flood. Here again, we see the major problem with Dr. Davidson's view, together with other theistic evolutionists. They elevate a particular view of science above Scripture. In my lecture in Tim Keller, I address the biblical data verifying the Scripture supports the universality of Noah's flood. Greg Davidson, unfortunately, is a compromiser of the faith. He does not, even though he says he believes in Sola Scriptura, functionally does not act this way. He functionally puts scientific findings as a means of reinterpreting the Bible. And that is what constitutes the sinful compromise.